Hello and welcome to another episode of the Dongfang Hour China Aerospace and Space News Roundup. This for the week of the 10th to 16th of May, 2021. I'm Blaine Curcio, joined as always by my co-host, Jean Deville. Before getting into this week's episode, a couple of small administrative points. First, as always, a special shout out to our good friends at GoTikonauts and Spacewatch.Global, two excellent sources of space industry news. Second, we're very happy to announce that the Dongfang Hour has started a weekly China Space newsletter, so be sure to sign up on our website. This week, we bring you updates from two of China's premier commercial launch companies, Galactic Energy and iSpace. We bring you a rather unusual piece of news from the Nam Pen Post newspaper. But first, Jean is going to give us a rundown of the entry of the Jurong Mars rover, uh, which occurred earlier this week. Ladies and gentlemen, we are honored to welcome you aboard the Dongfang Hour. Please make sure your seatbelt is securely fastened. Thank you. John, what's happening with Jurong? So um, over the past week, we went through this unbearable suspense, and notably last Saturday on the 15th of May, where China successfully landed the Jurong rover and lander on Mars. And in, in this episode, I will refer to the lander and to the rover invariably as Jurong. And so one of the reasons this suspense during the landing was unbearable was due to the absolute non-coverage of the event by the Chinese, leaving space fans all around the world with only what we could get from amateur and non-official radio astronomers, which were measuring the very weak signals that 1011 uh, was sending back to the Earth. And so this gave us hints on what was going on, although there are at some points also signal blackouts. And this is because the signal uh, that um, 1011 was sending back to the Earth is just so faint. And so you need these massive high-gain antennas uh, to be able to measure correctly these um, these uh, these signals, and you can, for example, I'll put up a few pictures of the actual deep space ground station network that China was using for Tian One Ones. These they're absolutely massive, and so let's briefly go through what the Tian One One mission went through yesterday. Um, and I think no matter if you're a, a Chinese space plan or not, I think it's undeniable that this. Uh, this Mars landing was an extraordinary technological feat that combined cutting edge things like, you know, leading, you know, the latest material sciences, radio communications, advanced automation, and, uh, you know, advanced also flight dynamics, just to name a few. And um, speaking of automation, it's also interesting to point out that the entire landing uh, phase that took place on Saturday was entirely automated. And this is because uh, sending a signal from Mars to Earth takes quite some time, something around 10 to 15 minutes, I believe. And and so just any manual intervention is not possible due to this one-way time to send a signal. And so everything has to be naturally automated. And so now going through the different phases uh, of, of the landing, there are three phases, basically. You have the atmospheric entry phase, you have the parachute uh, deployment phase, and you have the powered descent phase. And so um, the Tianwen-1 initially was in an elliptic uh, parking orbit with the uh, periapsis of 265 kilometers and an apoapsis of 15,000 kilometers. And so the landing sequence was kicked off when the Tianwen-1 orbiter uh, started to slow itself down. It left its initial parking orbit to reach a lower orbit um, in order to release the Jurong entry capsule. 
And the entry capsule itself, it looks like a cone-shaped structure, which is composed of a heat shield, of a parachute module, and perhaps more importantly, you have um, the lander and the rover inside this uh, entry capsule. And just before the separation, the latest navigation parameters are transferred um, from the Tianwen-1 orbiter to Zhurong, and this is because after the separation between the orbiter and the entry capsule, uh, the entry capsule that also called Zhurong, it will have to rely only on inertial uh, navigation um, data. And so after the separation, the orbiter boosted itself back into a higher orbit. That's because it will continue to be useful. It will serve as um, a data relay. And Zhurong, on the other hand, entered a ballistic trajectory. And as it approached the red planet, it started to feel the atmospheric drag of the Martian atmosphere. And this starts approximately at 125 kilometers altitude. And this is what officially kicks off what we call the atmospheric entry phase. And so this is the first breaking phase and where the capsule relies essentially on atmospheric drag to slow down. And this is an extremely efficient way to slow down. The capsule basically goes from super massively hypersonic speeds of around 4.8 kilometers per second. That's probably something like Mach 10 or Mach 15. And it slows down all the way to Mach 2, so supersonic speeds around 500 meters per second. And so that's basically absorbing 90% of the initial velocity of the entry capsule. And this is done at the at the cost of massive heating. And luckily the entry capsule is equipped with uh, a powerful heat shield, which is, which is shaped like a spherical cone with an angle of 70 degrees. And so as it does this atmospheric entry, um, according to various Chinese sources, the trajectory was not actually entirely, entirely ballistic. It's what they called semi-ballistic. So what this means basically is that the entry capsule has um, a non-zero angle of attack. It means that there's an angle uh, that's between the axis of symmetry of the entry cone and the velocity vector. And so this generates lift. And lift is good because it enables the uh, entry capsule to be a bit more maneuverable. It also means uh, less um, severe accelerations. On the other hand, it means uh, higher heating constraints. So, you know, there, there are always pros and cons. Um, and so this is where... Um, and, and so at some point we reach the par parachute deployment phase. And so as the capsule slows down to around Mach 2, the supersonic parachute then deploys and this slows down the spacecraft further. The speed will then slow from, slow down from Mach 2 to subsonic speeds. And, um, once you reach subsonic speeds, really the heat shield is no longer useful. So it is discarded. And this enables a telemetric laser and a microwave velocity sensor that were situated behind the heat shield to start making measurements. And this enables to calibrate the navigation instruments uh, because inertial navigation data um, naturally by construction, it just accumulates errors um, as time goes by. So, um, so that's an important point. And then um, as the lander slows down to 100 meters per second, uh, at some point, this is where the parachute becomes basically ineffective. And that's because the atmosphere of Mars is just um, so thin that, you know, below 100 meters per second, it becomes useless. And that's when the entry capsule and the parachute are just entirely discarded um, by Zhurong. And so it's just the lander and the rover by themselves. And this is when uh, the lander, the Zhurong, will fire off uh, its uh, 7,500 Newton variable thrust engine. And this enables um, the uh, basically the lander to continue to slow down. It is even able to uh, maintain a hover, which is done at some as basically at the final stages to enable the onboard optical sensors to image the terrain, to select a suitable landing area, and potentially also to avoid any landing areas that would be you know too bumpy or difficult to land on. 
And the very last bit of velocity then in the final seconds of the landing is then absorbed naturally by the lander's four landing legs. Uh, worth noting also, the rover is not released immediately from the lander. The rover actually, uh, you know, the lander first has to deploy solar panels. It has to establish communications with the Earth, and that's generally through the um, the 1011 orbiter that acts like the data relay. It can also communicate directly with the Earth, but um, I believe that the data rate is extremely low. So it, it, the higher data speed goes through the the data relay, the 1011 orbiter. And also, I think the lander performs an imaging of its surroundings. So only once all of that is done, I believe that the rover uh, will be released and it'll be able to drive off and explore uh, the, you know, the Martian soil. And this will happen, I think, in a couple, couple Martian days. Um, so yeah, so China becomes the second na nation in the history of space exploration after the U.S. who ever land uh, something successfully on Mars, and that's um, that's of course excluding some some failures or some semi-failed attempts coming from Europe or from Russia. Um, of course, I don't want to count the chickens before they've actually hatched. Um, a lot of things can still go wrong for Jurong, but I think definitely considering that this is uh, the first independent attempt from China to reach Mars or to land on Mars, I think this can already be considered um, a great success. And I think also one last thing I want to note here before I hand it over to Blaine is that it's it's interesting to see how China is able to reuse technologies from past missions, but also uh, able they're able to incrementally improve these technologies. And we've seen this before, for example, with the uh, Shenzhou capsule, um, you know, the crude capsule, the uh, Tianzhou cargo resupply, as well as the uh, Tiangong um, experimental space station that all share a common core of technologies. And we're seeing the same thing for uh, the Tianwen-1 missions lander, uh, which consists of a circular platform that resembles a lot the lander that was for the Chang'e 3 and 4 missions. It also has this same um, main variable thrust engine in the center, 7,500 newtons of thrust. Uh, but this is also actually a good example of incremental improvement because this engine, the 7,500 thrust, uh, Newton thrust engine was, um, was actually modified. It was used during the Chang'e 3 and 4 landings, but according to the manufacturer ALPT, which is also known as Casks 6 Academy, the structure of this, this engine was optimized. They used a novel 3D printing technology. They increased the pressure in the combustion chamber and they just reduced the volume of this engine so it would fit in the uh, re-entry capsule. And so basically this also divided the weight and the volume by three of the engines, according to ALPT. So, so I'll just end here on this very positive note, really kudos to China for completing this, uh, this landing. And um, I think everyone's really excited to see what will come of the uh, future exploration of Jurong. And maybe just one uh, slight um, more negative note, I really hope that CNSA and the C CMSEO, the China Manned Spaceflight Engineering Office, they can do a better job of communicating about these um, these events, because I think that um, these missions, which generally, I think they can generate extremely powerful um, soft power for China. They can, and it, I mean, just so many space flyers around the world are interested they managed to turn it into this sort of more neutral event where a lot of foreign media was discussing, of course, the technical feat that was completed by China. But at the same time, there was, again, this discussion about the opacity around the program. So that's, I think that's a bit unfortunate. And I think um, definitely CNSA and, and CMSEO, they can do uh, much better, hopefully, for, for the next missions. 
For sure. And I mean, just to that point, I, I was watching earlier today the video from uh, from Perseverance that was from a few, I guess, a couple of months ago of its descent onto onto the surface of Mars. And it was it was an incredible video that was posted by NASA. You had uh, I mean, it was it was just really inspirational stuff. So definitely um, would have been cool to see, you know, similar such videos or, or other, you know, in the future, it would be cool to see. But um Anyway, uh, really good summary. Thank you, Jean, for uh, for the the information there. So, just a couple of, of very small points to add from my side. Um, so, obviously, it's uh, it's it's apparent, but um, this was a very big accomplishment, hugely significant mission, and uh, I think there's no no more obvious way of uh, of, of describing that than uh, than to note that we saw a, an official congratulatory message from uh, from Chinese President Xi Jinping following the mission, uh, saying you know the successful landing. Um, uh, I quote here, he says, you know, you were brave enough for the challenge, pursued excellence, and placed our country in the advanced ranks of planetary exploration. Your outstanding achievement will forever be etched into the memories of the motherland and the people. So powerful and patriotic stuff. I would also note, and this is not to imply that they are in the same uh, league per se, but Elon Musk also tweeted a congratulations uh, as a hmm. reply to an official uh, press release from Xinhua. So everyone, uh, everyone around the world, very inspired and impressed by this mission. Um, another thing I was thinking about earlier today is, you know, this mission really, it's, it is illustrative of the complexity of the Chinese space program and the very large number of major projects that are being done in parallel. So as we, you know, it's, it's interesting to think back, like this mission launched from Wenchang in July of 2020. Yeah. When, when the uh, Tianwen-1 launched. So this is what, uh, eight months ago. And since then, so between the launch of Tianwen-1 and the landing on Mars, um, we've had 17 Yaogan satellites launched. We've had multiple Gaofun satellites, Huanjing satellites, Ziyuan satellites all launched in that time. Uh, we saw the launch of the second and third Tiantong first generation satellites, which is kind of like China's version of Inmarsat. And of course, we saw the recent launch of the Tianhe core module and the Chinese space station and the famed runaway rocket stage that became an international incident. Separate to that, we've seen a lot of things happening on the ground. Satellite factories have been opened in these last seven or eight months. Launch industrial bases have been completed and a whole bunch of other things have happened. So again, it's kind of astonishing to think that uh, as all these things were occurring, there was also this Tianwen-1 mission that was hurtling towards Mars. And then over these past uh, couple of months, orbiting Mars as it collected data uh, to analyze different landing sites and, and presumably having uh, humans back in, in China analyzing that data and, and helping to make the decision of you know where, where to land. So so in short, uh, you know, a very busy time for the Chinese space program. I do not envy the person that is responsible for coordinating and managing all of these projects. Uh, but again, just interesting to take a step back and think, wow, I mean, it's, you know, the pandemic, we, we feel like eight months is a lifetime. And that is uh, true to a certain extent. But that is a lot of things to be doing over the course of eight months. Um, so the last point that I'll mention on, uh, on the, on the Zhurong, or I guess on the, on the Tianwen, uh, one mission in general is some of the interesting differences between, uh, Zhurong and, and NASA's Perseverance rover, uh, which landed on Mars, uh, just a couple of months ago. Um, so the first one is, uh, as John mentioned, in the Tianwen one mission, the lander carries the rover during the entire landing process. And then the rover drives off once the landing is complete. And this is unlike the, the Mars 2020 mission from NASA, which, you know, Perseverance uh, separates from the cruise stage during what's called the Sky Crane Maneuver. And there's a really interesting graphic that we can post from NASA that shows this Sky Crane Maneuver where you have um, these kind of cables that lower down Perseverance and then it just kind of gets dropped down on the surface and then the Sky Crane flies away as you do. Um, 
Last point, the Jurong rover weighs only a couple hundred kilograms, which is a lot smaller than NASA's Perseverance, which is around one ton, uh, and therefore it has fewer scientific instruments. And the main reason for this size difference is the fact that the payload for the Mars 2020 mission was basically just the Perseverance rover, so there was no orbiter. Uh, whereas with the China Mars mission, you had the Tianwen-1 orbiter, which is quite large in and of itself, and then you have the the rovers, so Jurong. And both of these things have different sets of, of scientific instruments. Um, and I guess the last uh, last difference, and this is just one of those like welcome to life in 2021, is that uh, Perseverance had, of course, the off-sighted helicopter. And so we are at a point in, in human history where we now have, you know, a helicopter flying around on Mars because why not? Um, so with that being said, uh, I think that's all for TN11. John, anything from you? We'll be all good. I'm all good. Excellent. Moving into our second piece of news on the week, we have seen on May 12th an announcement by Galactic Energy, one of the leading commercial launch companies in China, of a strategic cooperation agreement with China Huatong to develop the international launch market for Galactic Energy's launch vehicles. And in particular, their Series 1 solid-fueled small-lift rocket, which was launched for the first time in November of last year. And so this is an interesting update for a couple of different reasons. So first, it is yet another piece of positive news for Galactic Energy, which was founded a slightly astonishing 37 months ago, 38 months ago, I guess. So February 2018 might be 39 months, but that's semantics at this point. Um, and impressively, they managed their, to have their first rocket successfully reach orbit uh, about two years and nine months after their founding. So again, uh, just another you know positive piece of news from um, what would have certainly been considered one of the second generation of commercial launch companies. But I guess um, getting to a point that we would have mentioned in an earlier episode, this distinction of generations is becoming less relevant as some of these second generation companies start to really accelerate their their development. So um, certainly a continuation of the positive news from Galactic Energy. Um, the other point I would mention is that the, the article says that they are targeting their first international launch for the Series 1 rocket for 2022. And this is going to be uh, seemingly kind of brokered by Huatung or otherwise Huatung will be helping them to do this. And uh, that takes us to Huatung. So who is Huatung and what are they up to? So this is a, it's a very interesting company. Uh, so Huatung is um, a sort of international business development type of, of company of, of Kasich. So Kasich, of course, is the kind of secondary space industry uh, state-owned enterprise in China. And uh, many of our viewers probably would have heard of CASC and, and within CASC, China Great Wall Industry Corporation. And as far as I can tell, Huatang is effectively the, the China Great Wall Industry Corporation uh, equivalent of, of Kasich, which is to say it is a relatively commercial subsidiary of what is a very not commercial state-owned enterprise. And they are tasked with doing international business uh, for Kasich. And I would also point out that Huatang has multiple subsidiaries that are dedicated to different industries, including one that's called Huatang Aerospace, which probably would have uh, some role in, in brokering this deal. And I think that moving forward, Huatang is going to be an increasingly important company to watch given their role within Kasich. As we've talked about at length, Kasich is pushing a number of different commercial space industry initiatives. And as they try to go international with some of these initiatives, it seems like Huatang is going to be kind of the conduit through which they are going out into the world. And I think, again, if we compare this to a China Great Wall type of company, these are they're very different companies from the parent companies that they that they are um, that they are a part of. So, uh, again, going back to China Great Wall. Uh, 
I, I, it's a company I know quite well. And, and several of the senior people within China Great Wall that I know, they come from backgrounds that are like things like English language studies or general business or areas that are a bit less hardcore tech and a bit more kind of aimed at, you know, being sort of international and, and understanding other places and thinking in a bit more of a flexible way. And so I don't know Hua Tang as well as I know China Great Wall, so it's a little bit of speculation. But again, I could imagine you have a very different type of culture within Hua Tang than you would within, say, the broader Kasich uh, organization. And so, um, again, I think moving forward, as we see things like uh, the, you know, the Xing Yun constellation or even the Kasich cloud kind of industrial IoT suite of services, uh, this company, Hua Tang, is likely to play an important role in commercializing and internationalizing Kasich's efforts in, uh, in the space domain, but again, also in, in other domains as well. Um, Jean, I'm starting to sweat because the aircon in here is not working, and one way to stop that is to stop talking. So I'm going to hand it over to you. Anything else to add on galactic energy while I continue to swelter in the Hong Kong summer? Uh, sure. Uh, I, I, I'm curious to see what galactic energy will be able to achieve on the international launch market because um, while it's known that other launch companies, commercial launch companies, have searched for opportunities abroad, these efforts generally have been quite limited. And this is because... Um, well, these companies really have put the focus on the domestic market, which is undeniably on the low hanging fruit, uh, for, for launch. And, um, but then I'd say we haven't seen anything as structured as this partnership that, uh, Galactic Energy has put together with, uh, China Huatong. So, um, I expect that, as you, as you said, you know, being backed by a large SOE like China Huatong, I think also it's sometimes called Valenco. Uh, this may have a significant impact on business development. And again, I, I agree that this um, China Huatong plays a similar role to a China Great Wall, uh, you know, as China Great Wall would play for for Cask's products. So, um, so I think we'll have to see. I think it's also interesting to observe if any of the other uh, leading commercial launch companies, such as Landspace or iSpace, sort of follow the example of Galactic Energy in making this type of partnership for seller, selling their launches uh, internationally. And maybe speaking of iSpace, this is a great segue to our next piece of news on, um, well, this test that was completed by iSpace. So the launch company iSpace, they announced on the 10th of May that they had successfully completed a comprehensive test of their Methlox common bulkhead um, tanks to be used on their upcoming Hyperbola 2 rockets. And so common bulkhead tanks, basically the idea is in, instead of having two separate um, tanks, one for the fuel, one for the oxidizer, basically you sort of put these together into one big tank that are still separated into two, two sub tanks. And these two sub tanks share a common wall. And the idea here is this makes the tank much more compact. It reduces the weight. It also reduces the height of the, of the rocket, which is beneficial for the stability of the rocket. But on the other hand, it means that you have a bit more structural complexity and you also have complications linked to thermal insulation uh, between the two sub tanks that are sharing the same wall. And so in the case of iSpace's Hyperbola 2 rocket, which uses, uh, will have this common um, bulkhead uh, tank, the common bulkhead technology probably should be a little bit easier to manage. And this is due to the fact that um, it's a methylox rocket. And so, um, you know, the boiling point of liquid methane is minus 161 degrees Celsius. And for liquid oxygen, it's minus 183 degrees Celsius. So this difference, this delta of 20 degrees, is not nothing, but it's not significant enough to make thermal insulation extremely critical 
uh, as as you know as it would be if you were for example using liquid hydrogen which has a boiling point of minus 253 degrees celsius so that makes it much more challenging and indeed this is something that uh, ispace puts forward a lot and it says also that due to this uh the choice of methylox um well, there are much lower uh, thermal insulation requirements, and they even say that they actually don't put any thermal insulation at all between at the wall between their sub tanks. So um, back to the tests that were performed by iSpace on this tank, it basically concerned the plumbing systems that go with the tank. So that's the pressurizing system, that's the valves, that's the various electronics and sensors that are here to monitor the fuel level and the temperature. And it also included filling and discharging the tank multiple times in order to simulate um, reuse of the tank because Hyperbola 2 uh, is a rocket that's going to be reusable. And they also verified the rigidity of the structure in the changing low temperature environment. They also checked also, they monitored the thermal environment after um, repeated reuse to see if there was any uh, change. So I think it's fair to say that the completion of this test brings iSpace one step closer to the uh, hops of their Hyperbola 2 prototype, which according to their uh, recent news is still supposed to happen this year. So um, I think we're definitely all looking forward to that. And I just one final point here. I think it's uh, it's been really uh, so far a pleasure to follow iSpace and what they've been doing because they've been really open about a lot of what's going on in their company. It's not, it's not SpaceX where you have live coverage of what's going on at Boca Chica, sure, but you still have a PR that by Chinese standards are really on fire. They publish a lot of uh, videos, photos. And so I think that's really awesome. Um, and I think hopefully the PR people from iSpace can maybe, uh, you know, get in touch with the people from CNSA and CM CMSEO to just, you know, convey the idea over that uh, sharing the journey of what you're doing is actually beneficial. Um, I mean, from all points of view, I think. And of course, they're welcome to get in touch with the Dongfang Hour as well and see if there's any room for collaboration <laughs> about, uh, you know, helping iSpace reach a, a wider audience. But, but I think I'm um, just you know, one, one quick point to add on iSpace and then I'm going to get to talking about the NomPen post. Um, so there's an article from maybe a year, year and a half ago, I recall from iSpace that showed a really excellent, uh, sort of a diagram or I guess a GIF maybe of the common bulkhead uh, tank and kind of what that looks like. And uh, as someone, uh, for someone such as myself, who's definitely not an engineer by training, um, that was a very easy to understand GIF. So I will see if I can find that and we will post it up with um, with this video. Um, that being said, the NomPen post. So uh, one of my favorite you know, favorite newspapers to see space industry updates from because you don't see it very often. But uh, so the NomPen Post published on uh, May 12th, a story talking about how CGWIC, the subsidiary of CASC that I mentioned earlier, plans to open an office in Cambodia before the end of 2021 to help promote the adoption of Beidou satellite navigation technology in the transport sector in Cambodia and also in ASEAN more widely. And the announcement comes about six months after an MOU that was signed between CGWIC and an unnamed Cambodian entity related to Beidou, Earth observation and road mapping using uh, using space infrastructure. And so I, I guess just to, to unpack this a little bit, again, CGWIC is this commercial and international facing subsidiary of CASC. And China and Cambodia have had some fits and starts in their space industry cooperation over the last several years. So 
China and indeed through China Great Wall, they've sold a few different satellites to Southeast Asia. And in early 2018, there was uh, a, an agreement between China and Cambodia where Cambodia allegedly bought a, a satellite. And this was back in about February 2018. Um, and this was a very high profile ceremony. It was presided over by, by Li Keqiang, the, uh, the, the, the number two person in China. Um, it, it, this this uh, ceremony three years ago, um, we have not heard anything since then about this satellite. And as far as I can tell, it, it's, um, it is not moving forward very quickly. So again, we've seen fits and starts as it relates to China-Cambodia space cooperation. Uh, I, I would also point out that we've seen in years past some successful examples of China selling satellites into the region. So, for example, Laosat-1, which was sold to Lao by CGWIC and launched in 2015. Um, and so basically, I, I think this is an interesting example of what is likely to be increasing activity by CGWIC and possibly also by Huatang in the future um, in places like Southeast Asia or South Asia and other Belt and Road regions. Um, this is going to be, I suspect, also particularly true for very large scale projects. So if we think about, say, um, you know, building a satellite or launching a, a satellite, um, if Cambodia wants to buy a Chinese satellite or rocket and they want to buy it from, let's say, land space, and even if, let's say, land space is, is lower cost than, than say, CALT or, or you know, CASC, the, the broader company, um, there's the issue of financing. Rockets are not very cheap. And oftentimes you have a situation where it's someone like the China Export Import Bank or some other kind of government fund that would finance the project through either loans or some kind of loan equity combination. But basically these types of loans, this type of project, it I suspect it is significantly easier to do if you are a state-owned company. And so I think... Um, I guess thinking back to the earlier story about Hua Tung and Galactic Energy, this may be a way for these commercial companies to go international while also getting state support, be it through financing or other you know, infrastructure that the state has. Um, and, and so again, I think that moving forward, we're likely to continue to see CGWIC and, and potentially Hua Tung uh, pushing into these regions. And so who knows, but maybe in a few you know months or years, we will be hearing from the uh, the Vientiane Post or the uh, the Bangkok uh, the Bangkok Post as well. I think they like using the word post for newspapers in that part of the world. Yeah, should be. Um, maybe we will see similar articles, uh, you know, talking about CGWIC or Hua Tung coming into one of these countries. So um, again, for those who are not reading the Nam Pen posts on a regular basis, I hope that was an interesting piece of news because I certainly don't come across articles there very often. Uh, Jean, anything to add from your side on CGWIC and their adventures in Cambodia? I'm all good. Excellent. Well then, uh, this has been another episode of the Dongfang Hour China Aerospace and Space News Roundup. This for the week of the 10th to 16th of May. I'm Blaine Curcio, joined as always by my co-host Jean Deville. Thank you very much for watching or listening. And don't forget to subscribe to our new newsletter because we have about six more pieces of news from this week that we have not even scratched the surface on. And uh, the only place you're going to find it is indeed the newsletter. So check it out. Thank you very much and have a good, uh, have a good day. Thank you for watching. Bye.